0: What is the biggest risk to children in 2021? It could just be not allowing children to take any risks at all. In this episode we're talking with risky play advocate Tim Gill all about risk and adventure play in childhood, child-friendly urban design and the tools we use to change the face of public policy in relation to play. Welcome to Raising Wildlings, a podcast about parenting, alternative education stepping into the wilderness however that looks with your family. Each week we'll be interviewing experts that truly inspire us to answer your parenting and education questions. We'll also be sharing stories from some incredible families that took the leap and are taking the road less traveled. We're your hosts Vicky and Nikki from Wildlings Forest School. Pop in your headphones settle in and join us on this next adventure. Before we start, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Kabi Kabi and Gubby Gubby people. We honour their songlines and storylines and pay respect to the Elders, past, present and emerging. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which you are listening to this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Raising Wildlings podcast. My name is Vicki Oliver. Guys, it's been a really busy time at Wildlings at the moment. Our holiday programs have just launched. We're completely sold out in Brisbane with a handful of spots left here on the Sunshine Coast. And not only that, we have been all over the place. I have done a fair share of driving in Southeast Queensland, doing some educator workshops. We have collaborations in the wings. We've got special projects that we're really excited to share with you. But interestingly, over the past two months, one of the topics that I've been asked to talk about the most has been risky play and um, you'll notice that we've done a few episodes in relation to risky play on the podcast but it's really apt today that I'm talking to one of the global leaders in this area Tim Gill. So Tim's a global advocate for children's play and mobility. He's also an independent scholar and consultant and he's the author of No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk Averse Society and also The Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you, but before we meet Tim, it would be so great that after you've listened to this episode, if there's like gold nugget of wisdom or one of those aha moments that you've, you've gained from listening to the conversation, please share that with us. Instagram's probably the best platform for doing that because we love resharing that and it will help other people to um, take notice of the episode and, and have a listen and we can help change the face of childhood and risky play. So let's get to it. Let's meet Tim. So Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here.
0: That's great. Now, um, I want to take you right back to the start. I want to know a little bit about your story because you're the author of No Fear, Growing Up in a Risk Averse Society. Like, how did you get to the point where you need to get all your ideas in writing? What What was your journey to getting to to be this amazing risky play advocate?
1: Well, it goes back, I fell into this whole territory really. Um, I'd like to tell you a big story about how passionate I was about children and risk and play, <laughs> but actually that would be a falsehood because uh, in the early 90s I was sort of drifting around uh, various jobs not feeling very satisfied and kind of fell into this job for an outfit called the Children's Play Council Mm -hmm. and at the time it was a part-time job that fitted in with other priorities but long story short it was the the job that got under my skin Um, and I just found the topic of of children's play and and its role in childhood uh, endlessly fascinating and having my own uh, child arriving a couple of years after I got the job, of course made it all rather more personal. Mm. And um I, I guess so a few years later I wanted to go freelance um but still work in the same area and and risk became and it's sort of question of how do you on the one hand allow children, you know, rich learning experiences discovering what they can do what their limits are but on the other hand doing a reasonable job keeping them safe mm. that really uh seemed a, a very important and knotty issue and thankfully uh, a foundation agreed with me and commissioned me to write what became no fear
0: mm. I think I read it, does it did it come out as a like a pdf document to begin with Was there a
1: no, I mean it was simultaneously published in book form and as a PDF which back okay, in 2007 right. it, you know was quite enlightened. I mean this is a yeah. charitable foundation so you know they they just wanted to get the word out but but I'm I'm very happy that they did that and now the, the it's it's almost impossible to get hard copies but of course anyone who wants to can can download the PDF.
0: Yeah, I remember I do remember reading it um when we first started our business and I was just enthralled with it and you know, And like you, I've always been a teacher and interested in children, but I totally resonate with the fact that when you have your own children, it makes it so relevant and so real and so important and yeah. and running with that and, and make that being like such a huge focus for the work that we do. I've got all sorts of questions, but um, I think I might start with the first one I saw in one of your interviews and and in a few places, the term benign neglect. And i I loved that so much. so do you want to talk to me a little bit about what what you think that is and and in terms of parenting?
1: sure. it it's really a the very simple idea that that you know we want we all want our children and the children we work with to grow up to be responsible, independent, resilient people. um and that 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 means that we have to create some space and time when to all intents and purposes they they are they are in control they they are calling the shots they're uh, learning the consequences of their actions and that means that the adults in the frame if you like have to have to learn how to kind of turn away or mm. or use their peripheral vision or you know step out of the frame and it can be difficult but i think it's absolutely essential if we if we are to give children that sort of taste of freedom and responsibility that that it seems to me is really obviously
0: mm. an essential
1: ingredient of a balanced childhood.
0: I think so too I think you know letting them face some of that adversity but they've got a bit of a safety net still.
1: Absolutely and you know there's a the idea of children themselves saying you know I want to do it by myself but mm. can you help me um, or adults saying you know see if you can figure it out for yourself um, that's that's the beginnings of the, the insight uh, uh, around benign neglect. But I, th- I think it does go further than that because I think it's it's about looking for opportunities for extended periods of time mm. where children, you know, they know that or, or they feel that there isn't an adult waiting anxiously in the wings ready to step in at the first sign of any problems.
0: Mm. I think, like I know parents are always wanting to keep their children safe, but do you think there's also an element of parents worrying about societal expectations and judgment
1: absolutely and you know I'm I'm, I'm not actually a parenting expert I, I don't in fact I'm suspicious of the the sort of parenting advice world. I think there are too many people telling parents how to do their job especially today with when we're all living in a goldfish bowl anyway yeah. and so my message is and most of my work actually focuses on everybody else, um, yeah. you know, on, on the councils, on educators, on regulators, on the media um, and, and just saying, you know, back off a bit and let's just allow parents and children a bit more space uh, and freedom to, to you know, to, to, to make the judgments for themselves mm. to, and, and for the parents to maybe learn from their efforts and their mistakes and t- t- crucially to support what should surely be a shared goal of helping our children to be responsible, capable, confident, independent, resilient people.
0: Yeah, I absolutely think that that you've hit the nail on the head there. And that, that is, I think it's always good to remember that 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 is underlying everything is that shared goal of, of wanting that for our children. So if we can keep that in focus, then it makes our jobs a little bit easier to then focus on all those things, like you said, like, you know, councils. Yeah. And, and educators and all those sorts of things. Um, so let's explore the idea of the zero-risk culture that we've sort of found ourselves in. Can you talk us through maybe the evolution of this sort of viewpoint and how this has impacted childhood and where we go from there?
1: Right. I, I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but I, I, I think you know, it, it, it's an emerging sociological idea of, of what's sometimes called the risk society, mm. the, 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 particularly, you know, in, in, in high-income contexts, there was a point or a period where we sort of shifted away from being worried um, or, or, or a, f- a focus on kind of the good things and, and how to make our lives better and instead focusing on the, on the bad things and stopping the bad things from happening um, and it's sometimes called the risk society and mm-hmm. I think uh, that's true and you can see that in, in many uh, high-income countries and cultures and I think children are kind of condense and intensify that shift because of our relationship with children and their dependence on us but also because of that journey which is a complicated one
0: yeah or at
1: least at least it's it's complex you know it's there's enough there, there are really simple right answers and and it's also I think the, the sort of risk focus on risk is is magnified by media culture, and especially now social media culture. I mean, it's mm. very clear that nothing grabs our attention quite like fear. Absolutely. And so, you know, any bad thing that happens that maybe 30 or 40 years ago would have just, you know, given a passing mention, now is, is quite likely to become, you know, uh, uh, shared, magnified, distorted, uh, and and presented as, you know, the justification for all sorts of extreme reactions
0: Mm, it is and it's yeah you can't escape any tiny little thing and and then also we're seeing the judgment that comes from that and so it it makes it a lot harder to escape or to just sort of be able to say well you know accidents happen um sort of can't get a you know that's that's not the conversation that we have anymore it's always like who's to blame point the finger
1: yeah that's right and I mean I think that you know, there, there are some, if you like, counterweights. There is, there, there is a good, healthy conversation on the other side now, and I think that's one of the things that's changed in the 10 years or so since No Fear came out. I think there's a greater awareness of, you know, the, the downside of, 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 you know, that our well-intentioned efforts to keep children safe do have uh, side effects. Um, yeah. But, but it's still um, – you're battling against very strong basic emotions, um, and uh, that that I think is going to be a constant battle.
0: I think so too, and I think there's a lot of. Um, I was going to use the word myths, but I don't. They're not necessarily myths, but they're probably a distortion of the actual truth in terms of the real risk that children face as to the actual risks that children f- face today. Can you speak to that a little bit? Do you know, like, what are some of the fears that parents have? but what what are some of the things that they probably should be a little bit more mindful of in reality
1: well that's a big question i i mean i think what, one interesting thing happening right now is is parental fears about threats in the real world and by the way i think some of them are legitimate i, I and I, in my work yes. more recently the fear of traffic i think is is a legitimate fear and it, yeah. if anything one that we are, we underplay and that we've normalized the sort of existence of big dangerous metal objects in our lives but um, putting that aside, the fear of crime and strangers and abduction, and all of that, it, it, which is clearly you know minute, mm. has led some parents to kind of rely upon the digital world as a place for children to you know spend their time and meet their friends and socialise, and which of course has given rise to new threats, um, and in some cases really quite significant threats, mm. and of course new fears. And so I think that's a a really uh, clear example of where our short-sighted attempts to keep children safe in one area of their lives have exposed them to greater risks in other areas of their lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And do you think too, um, one of the things I often think about is children not being exposed to risk-taking behaviour as children, and then they become adolescents who then have more freedom in their lives to perhaps take some risks. Um, do you think people often are short-sighted in that way as well and that they're not actually thinking about how that um, exposure to risk as as young children will affect how they approach risk in their teen years
1: yes I do I do think that I think that that I mean actually one educator that I met in in Toronto in Canada principal of a just a state kindergarten school put it really nicely she said look she was a big believer in the value of outdoor play and risk. And she said, whenever she talks to parents who are nervous, she, she says to them, look, in this kindergarten, we're in the business of helping our children to grow up, to be responsible people. Mm. Uh, when do you want that to start happening? Do you want it to start <laughs> happening now? Do you want it to start happening in you know, year two, um, in year six, uh, you know when they're 16 and they're going to their first party, when they're walking down the aisle, when do you want this to start happening? Yeah. Um, because, what she was, of course, getting at was was that children can kind of grow into a sense of of their own abilities and and, and self-confidence can be nurtured in a gradual way. The the journey of childhood is a gradual one. And we do it, children make that journey, you know, best when none of the steps are too big. And I think we have got a point now where that step in adolescence can be a really big step, especially you know when it's linked to going to to secondary school or high school, and uh, we know that significant numbers of teenagers are now struggling. And around the world, we're seeing growing rates of, of anxiety and depression on the one hand, conduct disorders on the other, and they're each they're symptoms of this. Um, you know that we're asking too much of adolescents because we haven't allowed them to build and nurture their own resilience at a younger age
0: mm. yeah and also I guess that we also they miss out on that opportunity to feel trusted as well the whole way along and I think that's yes. a big missing piece that adults don't trust children not all adults but a lot of them or that that's just the culture that we live in that um at some point they have to earn it but they don't actually have that opportunity to do so as you say like I love that not you know allowing children to do things incrementally rather than that one big massive leap it can be a a lot for a teenager to have to take on that responsibility all of a sudden
1: yes and there's a a, I think a big conversation about how harshly we treat teenagers as well and and you know all of us I'm sure every single person listening to this can remember stupid things they did as a teenager um and Surprise! Surprise! Teenagers still do stupid things, but again, you know, be, be, because now that stupid thing can be captured and shared on social media and documented, and it's there forever. That's Whereas, right. you know, the stupid things I did, uh, probably most of the time, nobody was was even within sight. So, I, to be blunt, got away with a lot of stuff. That's
0: right. And yeah. I, I, you
1: know that that's a, a really big difference. I think that that we haven't appreciated uh, in in the lives of young people. We're
0: not giving them any grace to just yeah. go through the experience like we were able to yeah that's that's so true so talking about play how important is it for children to have time to engage in unobserved play away from the adult gaze
1: yes i i do think that's really important and and it's it's you know, it's it's the, it's part of what I think of as a kind of rich diet or a healthy diet of childhood experiences. Uh, I'm not saying, and I don't think very many people say, you know, all kids need to do is play all day long. Um, mm. But I really think that that a, a childhood where children don't have space and time, where they, to all intents and purposes, feel that they're the ones calling the shots. That, that 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 is a, a childhood that's not balanced. That's not mm. going to help with with children learning not just how to cope, but just who they are and um yeah. and what engages them. So yes, I I do and 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 so questions about privacy and a sense of of as I say, being outside of the kind of adult orbit in a way. They may not really be outside; it. they may well no. be you know. Uh, teachers or, or, or parents or educators in, in sort of keeping a, a, a sort of weather eye on things, but but for, for the child to feel, oh okay, so so now this is this is about me. I think that's really important, and it's also important in the virtual world as well. I think, and that's that's a real challenge. I mean, it's not an area of work yeah. that I focus on, but I think there are some really interesting questions now about privacy uh, and how these ideas of, of identity and um, autonomy are being played out in in our digital lives and in children's digital lives. It's the same yeah. sorts of issues, really.
0: Yeah, it's, it's conflicting. I know even as, as an adult, you know, what you share with the world is, um, you know, I, I notice a lot of people you know where that where where does your privacy and and the way that you um keep th- some things to yourself and and that's being modeled to young people about how much they share and how much they they keep private as well on the online world is mm. is something that i guess is is going to play out before our eyes um which i yeah. think is, is is a scary place for um parents to be in we don't actually know the long-term consequences of how this is all going to play out
1: right and of course all of this is new um yeah this it, this is uh, uh, it's, it's it's a new world. This is a once in a century transformation of of society. And and again, I think one of the things that would be helpful would be to realise that we're all trying to figure out the rules and how things
0: work. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need more research and more conversations around it. I actually think a lot of people, I think we they they are a little bit aware of some of the dangers, but almost like that's um, not might not happen to my children. So. Um, yeah, we're trying to find some really good people that we can tap into who can guide parents and mm-hmm. just give them the tools that we need to manage it as a family to have those conversations and include the children in the conversations in our teens yeah. um, so that it's a shared experience and a shared understanding. And so I guess if we want more children to be, I guess, less in the online world, one of the ways that we can do that is by getting them outside. And one of the areas that you've focused on a little bit is urban design, so what does child friendly urban design look like what are some of the elements that you really advocate for
1: Right it, it goes right back to what we've been talking about really which is that for, for me a child friendly neighborhood is a neighborhood where children have a lot of everyday freedom um, you know so and you could break that down into two dimensions on the one hand a child friendly place there's lots of choice there's play space there's places to hang out sports leisure nature but on the other dimension probably more important is is the mobility dimension. So, how easy is it for children to get around their neighbourhood? Crucially, of course, to get around on foot or by bike, because you know that that is about children being independent. So, it's only uh, only where you've got both high levels of independent mobility. Children, it's easy for children to walk around or bike, and you've got a lot of choice um, of places to go and things to do. Yeah, that you're in that sort of child friendly quadrant or area. And I think the mobility side of it is, is what's really challenging because again, what, what you what you come up against there is the dominance in many neighbourhoods of the car. And so a lot of my work is in practice is about saying a child friendly place has a greater emphasis on walking cycling and the car is more marginal and, and yeah. we're getting a better balance between the needs of of uh, car drivers and everybody else.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. We've um, been working with the local council, did an A Thousand Place Streets um, sort of uh, study and just for us to organise a street event and to close the street off to cars, the rigmarole we had to go through in order to do that was completely prohibitive. Like, you know, we were doing this as as a business and working together in collaboration with you know, the council and all of that sort of stuff. So if neighbourhoods want to do this sort of thing, it's really, really difficult. So if you had ways in which you can help to get around some of that bureaucracy and the red tape?
1: Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is a really good example of where these different sort of layers and, and, and levels of society need to be Working with each other. I mean, in the UK, there's, as you may know, there's been a big movement around play streets. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happened is growing numbers of municipalities have just streamlined their paperwork. They've said, actually, this is a good thing. Who doesn't want more kids out being active uh, in streets that are just basically residential streets, isn't it? Yeah. So we're going to simplify our procedures. We're going mm-hmm. to allow streets to just have one application. They just need to show levels of local support and they can organize, you know, play street a week for a whole year or whatever. And so I think in looking at what you're doing and others in, in Australia, you need to be pointing out just the benefits of this yeah. uh, model and saying, look, you know, what are you afraid of? Australia, like the US and UK, we have a huge problem with sedentary lifestyles and uh, kids you know stuck in front of screens this is an absolute easy win um, but it just needs a bit of creativity imagination and the willingness um, from from a bureaucracy to do things a bit differently and I'm sure that will happen so I'm sure that you know in a year or two or three your municipality and lots of others will uh, realize that this is a great idea and they need to make it easier for Uh, neighborhoods and communities to get kids out. And the the big picture, of course, is that, you know, we've got the the smartest people on the planet now devoting huge time and money to keeping us all inside and in front of screens as much as possible. So those of us who want kids to be outdoors and active need to up our game and we need to build that support. Um, And actually people working in public health, in uh, urban planning, in transport, in parks, uh, really should be understanding that that it is absolutely central to their role to get all of us out more active and more often. Yeah,
0: that's the, the inspiration that we need today to to keep advocating we've got lots of little plans in the in the works and I guess sometimes it can be a bit exhausting to do the networking and to bring everyone together but it's it's completely worth it in the end um and that sort of ties in a little bit because you're one of the architects of the risk benefit assessment something that the value we have in that is just absolutely phenomenal every time we mention it in any of our training you can just see the look in people's eyes like what a fantastic idea. So can you tell me more about why they're such an integral part of planning? How did it come about? Like it's just such a phenomenal thing and and what it is for people who don't know what a risk-benefit
1: assessment is. Sure. So at its simplest, it's it's a process that makes visible the good things that happen when anyone but children uh, in particular are allowed to take risks and and, and encounter uncertainty and and be making visible the good things, bringing those into our decision making. So it's transformed. So instead Mm -hmm. of being a process where you just try and restrict and regulate and reduce um, and, and basically control everything, Uh, risk management becomes a balancing act, where on the one hand, of course, you do pay attention to what can go wrong, but you also pay attention to the good things that happen. uh, That You know, when a child climbs a tree, all of the amazing learning and the experiences and the fun, and it's simple conceptually, but it's an absolute game changer, and I think that's what you're picking up on. And, I mean, uh, to be honest, well, firstly, it's not – Unusual in in medicine. I mean, any drug, if you you know that we take, that has side effects. So yeah. uh, any any medical treatment, uh, there'll be downside So uh, the the judgments there, clinical judgments, are about weighing up those risks and benefits. So so this is very common in some areas of life, but it's it's proved what you might call public risks. So, you know, so so where children are out playing mm. on playgrounds um or outdoor learning uh, it's harder because what's happened over 20 30 40 years is is a sort of factory based workplace health and safety mindset has grown up yeah um and actually in a way it kind of makes sense because in a factory you, you you know if you've got a wobbly bridge in a factory you just say flat out well that's that that's stupid you know the, the people are hurt themselves um so we need to stop that bridge from wobbling but in a playground of course good things happen with that wobbly bridge um, mm. And so the if, if, if risk-benefit assessment is a way of, of, of providing a better tool for those contexts where we need to think about the, good, the upside of risk. Yeah. Um, and so I think – and we also need to make it easy for you know, people like you, uh, educators, um, bureaucrats – to use uh, because, you know, you know, we know we're going to have to have paperwork these days um, and show back up our judgments. So that's the that's the other thing. I should just give a credit to Professor David Ball, a um, standing collaborator of mine, and he's a uh, an academic in risk management. And he and I and others in, in the play world in the UK have been working together on this for over 25 years. Um, but I, I would say he you know he's he's kind of in a way the brains behind the idea um but yeah, what i okay. contribute is is to try and work with him and others to to make it yeah uh real and make it easy to use and to communicate the benefits and, and and why it's such a useful tool
0: yeah well we have immense gratitude to you and to your colleagues because uh i like i'm harping on about it because honestly when we do our workshops and we and we reframe that it takes this onerous task that everyone shudders like, oh, risk assessments, like, don't, like, you know, this is why we need, we engage help because this is such a huge task for us to do. But it just completely shifts the mindset when you're doing it because it's reminding you why you're doing it and then it makes the task feel so much more purposeful and then we also say when you finish doing it, there's this just sense of like confidence in what you're doing because yes, you know there's risks, but you know why you're doing it. And so you can go into your activity feeling completely confident that it's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of crazy that we were ever doing anything else when you think about it. It's Absolutely. like, you know, you, you're given a form and, the, uh, and, and there's nowhere in the form where you'd say, why is you're taking the kids out into the bush? Mm. Um, well, that's, you know, well, of course, if, if, if you can't, articulate that and you're not being asked to articulate that of course you're going to get sucked into a whole load of anxiety about all these terrible bad things that can happen and you're going to start thinking about bringing in measures that that completely undermine that initial goal uh Mm. you know because that that's why i talk about making making the upside of risk visible
0: yeah absolutely it's it's important and you know at the end of the day, we need more people to understand that there are so many benefits for children in undertaking those risks um, and to learn to assess those risks for themselves. That's such a huge part of it because children do look to adults for everything these days because everything that they do, even organised sports, which we're very happy to allow our children to take the like, you know, that's where they're going to get the most. Isn't that, that would be one of the highest injury places that children get injured would be in organised sports. And we're Mm -hmm. happy to accept that risk. So, yeah, we need to know that that there's a reason why our children need to do those things because they need to be able to to go into the world, make some decisions and not be looking to the nearest adult to help make that decision for them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, Now, obviously, the world has been turned on its head with uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 what are your concerns when it comes to children with things like lockdowns and social distancing and the move towards online education? When you know children have had to stay out of schools and things like that, what do you, and and the fact that children been left out of this conversation?
1: Well, yes, that's very true. Uh, I guess certainly in the UK, there's an emerging picture which is quite complicated, actually, where some children have been fine and some maybe have even. You know, <laughs> done better because school yeah. hasn't been so great for them, or, or or they've had parents who've had a lot more time for them. But then a lot of children have had a really t- tough time, um, and and almost all children have, have had it tough in terms of their social lives, um, and just not being able to see their friends and and you know spend time, especially outdoors, of course. And I think what we'll pro- what we're beginning to see is that the children who are were already in Difficult circumstances, you know, in in poorer neighbourhoods or, or or families that were struggling financially, um, are being hit the hardest. And really, I think our attention should be on those children and their families. And uh, I th- also think that that means looking well beyond, you know, the academic uh, problems and mm. you know, the, the sort of catch-up rhetoric, and thinking about children's emotional well-being and how the, how we can help. A, big group of children get back on a kind of more healthy, emotional, even keel. I, I think the other thing I'd say about the pandemic is that I in a way it's it's trying to find a positive out of this difficult, well, really challenging time, which is surely one thing we've all realised is the value of a bit of green space, of our local neighbourhoods, mm. of, you know, community support, uh, of just, you know, that hyper-local living and, and, and particularly the value for children and that so as we come out of the pandemic we start to think more about how we can you know live a little bit more gently on the earth um, how we yeah. can value public space and nature and um, and make sure we give it the, the, the attention and the resources uh, that that uh, that it deserves and, and particularly the value of public space we've really seen uh, uh, so yeah many people have have benefited from just being able to get out, get somewhere quickly locally where there's a bit of greenery, where they can feel some, you know, relief and de-stress, and And that Mm. goes for children just as much as adults.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think we've been, I know I'm incredibly privileged where we live, that when we only had a very short period of lockdown, but um, we have access, and on the Sunshine Coast where we live in Australia, has so many amazing, beautiful green spaces, public spaces. Um, So even if we were to lock down again and, you know, we're restricted to 5K radius, we would still have an amazing array of places to visit. So um, it would be amazing if more uh, councils and, and towns and cities were able to plan for that. Um, moving yeah. forward can you give me yeah. some examples of cities towns or anywhere around the world that have really got it right when it comes to their their planning any that stick out well
1: yes uh, in in so the book that's just come out uh my book urban playground uh how child-friendly planning and design can save cities i pick out one neighborhood um and i say maybe this is the ultimate child-friendly neighborhood and it's the eco-suburb of vauban that's v-a-u-b-a-n Mm-hmm. In the German city of Freiburg, and it's it's a really it's a fascinating case study. It's about five or six thousand people, so it's a pretty big district. It's apartment living, um, so we're talking four, five, six-story apartment blocks. Um, but the key thing about Vauban is that the very, very low levels of car ownership. Uh, and if you do own a car, most families don't, you have to park it in one of three car parks around the edge of the district. So the whole of the space between the buildings, wow. it's almost like one big playground. I mean, it's really green. It's very attractively laid out. There's great walking, cycling connections. There's a tram that takes you into the city centre in 10 or 15 minutes. So you don't need as a family to own a car uh, often anyway. And so I visited this district twice, and both times, just the number of people, children of different ages, you know, with and without their parents, out and about, active in the public space, is incredible. I mean, I, in, in in my book, I talk about the sort of children being an indicator species. It's not my mm. idea, but 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 Voban is a really good example of that. It's where you know, it's a sign of the health of a human habitat where you see. Children of different ages being out and about in exactly the same way. That if you see salmon swimming up a river, that's mm. the sign of the health of that
0: habitat. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I really can't wait to to look that up. And you know, I just it gives me so much hope to see models like this around the world because you know, creatively, um, people are looking for different ways. You know, to, to move forward in our societies, and you know, space is becoming harder to come by, and so they're having to really rethink the way that you know we, we structure our society. So it's it's so good.
1: Yes, I think it's interesting as well. I know in 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 many parts of Australia, you're seeing more you know high density living. are uh, yes. you're seeing, and uh, you know that that is going to happen. And one of the things that Voban shows us is is that actually that can be quite a sustainable model uh you know sprawl is not a very good way for us to exist on the earth um but yeah so there are people like uh, natalia krisiak i must mention her so she's a an architect working out of uh, sydney who's focused on high density living for families and you know so she's tapping into some of these debates about how you can get you know apartment living that works well for families and i Mm. think that's we're going to see growing numbers of cities looking at this and growing numbers of families often choosing actually but you know it's 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 not it didn't used to be the default choice of families but there are lots of good I live in a reasonably dense part of of London my city not in an apartment but nonetheless it's not you know a sort of leafy suburb and you know it's nice to have all the things that we need close to hand. It, my daughter, when she was growing up, she could nip round the corner and see her friends without any great trouble. Yeah. And so unpacking the connections between places being sustainable and being child-friendly, I think that's one of the really uh, big focuses of my work right now because you mentioned the pandemic. Well, you know, we've got a much bigger challenge ahead and that's the challenge of, 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 a, of a net zero life uh, which yeah. we know and again in Australia you know this better than anybody that yeah. uh, we are, we cannot carry on living as we do uh, and expecting the earth to remain a hospitable place for us
0: yeah and somewhere that's worth living you know I think that there's one thing to have all the things, like we know consumerism, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you've got all the things and you want to go somewhere and there's nothing left to go and visit, there's no beautiful green space anymore because we haven't managed it properly, then, you know, it's going to be that turning point. It's far too late. We may already be at that point. So um, so it's so important to especially get kids outside so they have that connection so they can make good choices and be those good policymakers and drive that change that we need for the future.
1: But also, I, I think that, it's scary stuff thinking about climate change. But if we think about the views and the concerns of children and young people, we realise that some of the changes that we are going to have to make are actually going to be good for us and especially mm-hmm. good for our children. You know, who wouldn't want their child to be growing up and living and spending their life in a neighbourhood where they can be healthy, where they it's easy to get yeah. around on foot or by bike, you know, where there is lots of green space, where the streets have trees in them. Um, this vision of child friendliness, I think, can help to build a kind of positive motivation for some of the changes that we know are going to have to make anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I always I'd always love to, you know, hear about the hope-filled future that we have and the people out there making a difference, including you, Tim. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I've just a couple of last little questions, just our rapid-fire ones to ask you. Um, so the first one we always ask is do you have a good book that you're reading at the moment it could be fiction or non-fiction uh, or something that you could recommend that our listeners might really enjoy
1: uh well i'm I'm reaching over and picking up a copy of curbing traffic the human case for fewer Ah. cars in our lives such as uh, melissa and chris bruntlett who i was lucky enough to meet a couple who used to live in vancouver and then decided to move to the netherlands uh mainly because they wanted their kids to to live in a more child-friendly place Uh, they're they're a really engaging smart uh great communicators so so that's that's shaping up to be a really nice book
0: oh awesome yeah that sounds great I'm, i'm actually a little bit more fascinated with slowing down slow lifestyles and i think that um using our cars less is definitely a way to achieve that so that's that's a i'll be definitely tapping into that uh where do you like to go when you need to relax or unwind after a hard week or a hard day
1: well, it's funny you should ask that. Um, tomorrow, uh, my other half and I are going to be going to a cabin on the foreshore of the Essex coast. Um, exactly. So it's 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 flat land, it's big skies, uh, it's quiet. There's no internet, um, <laughs> and uh, you know you just you hear the see the the wading birds crying uh, in the evenings. Uh, uh, you watch the sunset over the marshlands uh i'm that that's Aww. that's my kind of peaceful spot and i'm really yeah. excited because we haven't been for two years of course um yeah. so yeah that's and we've been going to the same spot since before rosa our daughter was born and it's yeah. so it's a really special place for us and i feel very lucky that we can get there
0: yeah something special about going to the same place over and over again and just seeing how it changes and also that familiarity so you know coming back and seeing the things that you You've always seen over the years. It's really special. So I enjoy. It. Hope you guys have a fantastic time. Um Thank you. my last question here is if you could change one thing about our education system, what do you think that might be?
1: Wow. Um, getting all teachers and educators to have an immersive, thoughtful input around play and the, the, the true mm. importance and significance of play in children's lives, not just play for learning, but, you know, play as a kind of expression of our humanity. I, I think yeah. that, could, that, that, that could be really valuable as part okay. of your sort of initial teacher training.
0: I think so too. I think you're absolutely right there. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time this evening. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you and gaining your insights. I will be linking your two books that you've got, um, although you said your No Fear book is now only PDF form, is that correct?
1: That's right, yes, but the link is on my website.
0: Yep, so we'll put the links in the show notes for everyone and also the other links to your resources and your website.
1: Thank you very much for some cracking questions.
0: (laughs) You're welcome and you have a fantastic evening.
1: Cheers. Bye-bye.
0: It's been absolutely amazing talking to Tim about all things risky play today. We will link all of the information that he shared with us during the episode, uh, so you can check out that amazing little town in Germany and links to his books and um, and also that recommendation that he has on a car-free society, which sounds really fascinating. Now, if you're actually interested in getting your children outside more and engaging in risky play and want to be able to support them in the best way you can, we actually have a fantastic resource for you. If you head to our website, wildlingsforestschool.com forward slash free dash downloadables, this downloadable product, something you can print out, pop it on your fridge. It has all these alternative phrases you can use instead of be careful, something that slips out of our mouths all the time, but it's incredibly unhelpful. So if you would like to find new ways and language to support your children, you can print that one out. It has things like, what's your plan? Do you feel safe there? Are you still having fun? And they're great gentle reminders of how to switch up our language and support our children to be able to take those risks and uh, go on those adventures. So as always, guys, we absolutely love doing this journey with you. Until next time, stay wild.